Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. The Midnight Myth Podcast presents The Wheel of Ka, an exploration into the writings of Stephen King. What started as two friends rereading The Dark Tower has turned into an exploration of Stephen King's writing writ large. This episode, we finish our conversation on Stephen King, The Stand. Ladies and gentlemen, my name is Harold Emery Louder. And I'm here to tell you that, in the words of the old song, the fundamental things apply as time goes by. Like Darwin. The next time you stand and sing the national anthem, friends and neighbors, chew on this. America is dead. Dead as a doornail. Dead as Jacob Marty and Buddy Holly and the Big Bopper and Harry S. Truman. But the principles just propounded by Mr. Darwin are still very much alive. (laughs) As alive as Jacob Marley's ghost was to Ebenezer Scrooge. While you're meditating on the beauties of constitutional rule, spare a little time to meditate on Randall Flagg, man of the West. I doubt very much if he has any time to spare for such fripperies as public meetings and ratifications and discussions on the true meaning of a peach in the best liberal mode. Instead, he's been concentrating on the basics, on his Darwin, preparing to wipe the great Formica counter of the universe with your dead bodies. Ladies and gentlemen, let me modestly suggest that while we're trying to get the lights on and waiting for a doctor to find our happy little hive, he may be searching eagerly for someone with a pilot's credentials so he can start overflights of Boulder in the best Francis Gary Powers tradition. And while we debate the burning question of who will be on the street cleaning committee, he has probably already seen to the creation of a gun cleaning committee, not to mention the mortars, the missile sites, and possibly even germ warfare centers. Of course, we know this country doesn't have any germ or biological warfare centers. That's one of the things that makes this country great. What country? (laughs) But you should realize that while we're busy getting all the wagons in a circle, he's, Hey, Hulk! You pulling overtime? Harold looked up, smiling. Yeah, I I thought I'd get some, he told Wezak. I clocked you when I came in. You made six bucks already. Weezak laughed. Oh, you're a card hawk. You know that? I am. Harold agreed, still smiling. He began to relace his boots. A wild card. Fellow travelers on the path of the beam, Ugh. what is up? Wheel of Ka has returned. Wow. I would say long days and pleasant nights, but it's really like long time, no talk, no I mean, see. Seriously, it's been 11 months. It's been 11 months. I was just looking before I came over here. No, I it was, hasn't. Yeah. Literally? September 21st, 2021 is when the first part of The Stand was released. 
I just can't believe it has been that long since we have recorded a Wheel of Ka. That's insane. I mean, so much has changed. So much has changed. <laughs> I guess you all owe a bit of an exp- explanation, pardon yes. me, in terms of what happened. Yes. So we started the stand in September of 2021. Yep. Wow, it's been 11 months. Yep. And a lot of things happened in the course of that time. So one, I launched a business to which Steve started working with me. <laughs> Correct. And things were absolutely crazy and insane in that period. While we were just getting our foothold in the business, we were starting to feel confident about it. You had a baby. Yes. Yes, I did. Yeah. Frankie was born and now she's almost eight months old. So that's how long it's been since we've done an episode. And if you're listening and you're not a parent, the new dad thing, the new parent thing is an intense grind. You don't sleep for at least three months. Yeah, no. And it's really hard to sit down with a 1,400-page-long book no. during all of these major transitions. It's, it's hard to sit down with a, a book of instructions to try to put a crib together, Let, although I didn't put the crib together. Rebecca did all of that, so I'm not—you know what I mean. I know what you mean. <laughs> Just getting out of bed and doing the basics that you need to do to survive is a challenge with a newborn— let alone reading a really intense, very long book. Coupled that with both of us in career transition phases. Yeah. Uh, we've been trying to move both of us. Yep. That's been getting in the way. Yeah, get it all done at once. And then eventually we both settled into a rhythm. We started reading the book more. And I think we both hit a tipping point where it was, okay, all things are paused until I am done with the stand. Yeah, 100%. I couldn't be away from this longer uh, because in a strange way, you know, it's good for my mental health to do this, to have something. I mean, even pre baby to just artistically outside of music and theater, just be able to talk about, you know, an author that I love and books that I love and, and stories that I love with someone that I love has been vital and not having that for 11 months. You do get to a point where you're like, well, do I still want to do this? Is this like a thing? And as soon as I pick the book back up, that changed. That doesn't mean it was easy of a read. I can't wait to dig into this book, by the way. I have so many thoughts about this book. Good, bad, ugly, all of it. Yeah, me too. There is a lot to talk about here. And how it happened, I kind of picked up the stand while you were still getting adjusted to baby life. Yep. So I ended up finishing it about three or four weeks ahead of you. Yeah. So this conversation is going to take place where we left off, which was at the very first, like 200 or so pages of the stand, America has fallen. And then we're going to discuss the book from there on in till the end. That's a lot of book to get through. We'll get as much in as we can get in and we will talk about it until we have no more left to say, or we're both physically exhausted, whichever (laughs) happens first. Because it's the stand. That may happen. I mean, there's a lot. There's a lot. So a few things before we get too deep into it. I just want to plug Laurel's podcast, Sleep and Sorcery. Oh, yeah. She is doing a folklore and fantasy sleep podcast. If you have trouble sleeping, you can find Sleep and Sorcery wherever get your podcasts, as well as on YouTube. She's actually doing a giveaway right now if you want to... Join that. Find her on Instagram, which is at Sleep and Sorcery. We have the main podcast, 
um, The Midnight Myth, which is still continuing. And Steve, you have a podcast that you should plug. Oh, yeah. Mythic Thunderloot. So Mythic Thunderloot is a, uh, it's, a, how do I, it's a D&D podcast musical. So if you like Dungeons and Dragons, if you like theater, if you like musicals, uh, if you like rock music, you should check it out. Same thing. You can find it wherever you find your podcasts. It's uh, it's a group of, there's a, there's a game master and four players. I'm one of the players. Uh, we write songs, not in real time, but we play a live version of a Dungeons and Dragons game that's been crafted by the game maker. And then from that, we write uh, three songs an episode. And there's a lot of production value, um, and it is also featured on Broadway World Podcasts, or the Broadway Podcast Network, excuse me, is that, that's what it's called. I'm terrible with names. But Mythic Thunderloot is where, uh, where you should check that out. It is great. And if you think Steve's voice acting when he reads a bit of a Stephen <laughs> King book before our episode is great, which I do... Wait till you hear his singing in Mythic oh. Thunderlude. Oh, thank you. It is like the nectar of the gods <laughs> come to life. Steve is a beautiful, wonderful singer. Thank you. Thank and you. And it is a great podcast. And you also play the drums on it, too, yes. don't you? Yeah, I play the drums on about 98% of the tracks. Serious question. What can't you do? Uh, I can't bake. That's fair. I asked you I an honest question. I cannot bake. I didn't mean it so literal, but and I'm I glad cannot it. run a seven-minute mile. Not many of us can. No. Yeah, I can't run a seven-minute no. mile. Yeah, I drink too I much probably, beer. At this point, I might not be able to run a 27-minute mile. You could do a mile in 27 <laughs> minutes. I think about it. All right, let's talk some oh, stand. Yes. Well, let's do I it. will try my best to recap where we left off. It is going to be incredibly sparse. We have a whole group of characters after the fall of America and the super flu Captain Trips wipes out 99.9% of humanity that all start having dreams of meeting this woman, Mother Abigail, who is in Nebraska. From all different places of the country, these characters go. They meet Mother Abigail, who leads them to Boulder, Colorado. We also meet a character called Trash Can Man and the Kid, who are on their way to Nevada to go join up with the dark man, the walking dude, Randall Flagg. Once everyone gets to Boulder, Colorado, they start to form a new society called the Free Zone. They adopt the U.S. Constitution. Mother Abigail has a crisis of faith, thinking her sin is the sin of pride, and she ends up abandoning the community. They send some spies into to try to figure out what's going on with Randall Flagg. The spies are not successful. Mother Abigail dies, and she sends a few of our heroes to the West to ultimately confront Randall Flagg. One of them named Stu falls down a ditch, almost dies, but due to the lovely dog Kojak, he ends up living. And the rest of our heroes, led by Larry Underwood, make their way to the man in black, Randall Flagg. And on the precipice of their execution, the trash can man who had been exiled from Randall Flagg's camp comes back with a nuclear weapon, which goes off, exploding and eliminating Randall Flagg and his cohorts. In the last minute, Randall Flagg dissolves into two eyes and disappears. We then find Stu and Franny leaving the Boulder Free Zone, going back to New England to have a family and to raise it away from this new society, starting to think that maybe this new society is not going to go so well, and they might replicate some of the mistakes of the previous America, 
And the very last chapter has Randall Flagg regaining his body, presumably on an island where he is taking control of the local inhabitants. And that is the stand. So much happens. I left out so much. Yeah, but you hit all the big points, guy. Well, I just, I gloss over the entire um, odyssey that these characters go through to get to oh, Mother sure, Abigail, sure. which is a huge chunk of this it's a book. A lot of walking. I don't mention Harold, Nadine, or Joe. I don't mention all of those characters. I don't talk about Glenn. So there's a ton that we can get into oh, here. Oh, sure. I think one of the first things to kind of kick off this conversation is to talk a little bit more about the book, The Stand itself. We talked about this in our last episode. But that was almost a freaking year ago. Yeah. So, Steve, why don't you kick us off with some facts about The Stand? Yeah. So it was first published in 1978, uh, but he started writing it in 1975, and he was seeking to create an epic um, akin to The Lord of the Rings, uh, which there are a lot of similarities, a lot of parallels to The Lord of the Rings. Um, He had a difficult time writing it due to its size. He, He found himself writing and writing and writing, Um, And also to the number of characters that he had placed into the story. He found himself, he kind of wrote himself into a corner. Um, It was in 1990 when we got the version that we're reading, which is the complete and uncut edition. It added about 400 pages that were in his original manuscript. uh, And it revised the order of the chapters, funny enough. Um, And then it also shifted the timeline from 1980 to 1990, which we dove into in the last episode a little bit. Um, after the uncut version came out, it became the longest book for him to complete, clocking in at 1,152 pages. Um, and funny enough, the first 400 pages, not the first 400, but 400 pages that were cut, were cut. Uh, he was told because the book size would be too expensive for the market. Um, it's widely considered one of, if not his best novel, Um, There are two miniseries, one that was done, I believe, in the 90s with Gary Sinise and uh, one that was recently done with Alexander Skarsgård and I believe Oprah Winfrey uh, on CBS. And that, oh, and there's also a Marvel Comics run of The Stand, which I did not know. And that's a little bit of the background. How about that? Yeah. I wonder if that's any good. I don't know. It's written by somebody else. Yeah. It's, It's a different author. I wonder if that's any good. I mean, the Dark Tower comics, are they rock. I've not read those oh, also Marvel? I believe so. Interesting. So I think it's worth having completed the stand. We've completed the Dark Tower. We've completed it. We've completed Salem's Lot. We've done a lot of Stephen King books, and we have no plans on slowing down, by the way. Oh, we haven't even broken the surface either. We're going to keep doing Wheel of Ka until we have read everything or we die, whichever happens first. <laughs> <laughs> that is the plan. True. I mean, we said that early on. So till we meet at the clearing at the end of the past. Mm. But because the stand is so prolific, it has too many series. Like this book is so popular and so believed in and so followed they tried to do a mini series not once but twice i think it's worth introducing a new segment to the midnight myth the midnight myth wow to the wheel of ka what podcast am i on a new segment to the wheel of ka just sort of rating how we feel about the book we don't have to get into specifics 
and how we feel it relates to the Stephen King novels we have read up to date. Sure. And so that's my question to you. Where do you rate this one? How do you over overwhelmingly feel about the stand? So it's funny. I've thought about this a lot because I read it, you know, it was pretty disjointed the way that I read it. You know, I had, had the first two 250 pages life hit. I stopped reading it for about seven months, you know, and then picked it back up. And while it is, you know, commonly known as his best book, I don't think of the ones that we've read so far that it is my favorite. I enjoyed it. I really liked it. There are parts and characters and circumstances that I really love. As a book overall, I've read it once. I probably don't need to read it again. Um, So in terms of what we've read, I put it probably somewhere in the middle. I mean, to me, it is the best Stephen King novel we've read yet. Uh, And up there is It and Salem's Lot and The Mist for me. And then probably, I mean, outside of the Tower books. Include the Tower into that. Oh. I'm uh, I'm just curious. Yeah, I mean, I I still enjoy all seven. Well, seven of the eight Tower books I enjoy more than The Stand. I do. I I would put them ahead of that. I still think It is at the top for me. I think it's the best thing so far that Reeve we've read, excuse me, that he's written. Um, I would put the stand probably somewhere in the, in, in the middle, you know, I mean, it was good. It was good. I, there are a couple things, you know, coming out of a global pandemic, there were certain things I think I was a little desensitized to also growing up in what I like to call the walking dead era where, you know, we've had zombie video games for 20 years. We've had zombie comics, We've had a lot of this post-apocalyptic situation where, you know, 99% of the earth gets wiped out. I would imagine in 1978, it was probably more impactful. Um, But that, on the other hand, you've got some of the most vivid characters that he's written yet. You know, I was just thinking about Rebecca, before I came over, we were talking about... Rebecca, your wife. Yeah, my wife, excuse me, for, for folks who might just be listening now. You know, I asked her, who, who are your top favorite characters in this book? If you, if you were to, you know, talk about that. And I found myself not even giving her answer. I found myself thinking about Larry and how I think, you know, and, and how Larry Underwood, the way this book starts and the way it ends with Larry is sort of how I feel about the novel. At first, I feel kind of like, okay, I've, I've heard this story a million times it's interesting, whatever. I'm not that interested in it. Now that we have somebody who has a major character arc uh, and changes unbelievably, you know, that it's, it's that sort of situation that kept me hanging on with the stand. Are these individual characters in the journey that, that they take to become the people that they are as opposed to the book itself and the plot itself, I should say. I think that's totally fair. One thing that I have thought about in reading The Stand was that since I read the words, the man in black fled across the desert and the gunslinger followed, every single book I've picked up of Stephen King's, I have ferociously consumed Mm -hmm. and have read them at a breakneck pace for me. I'm naturally not a fast reader, but I've read them at a really fast clip. Books that once I started those books took out a life in my mind and they live in my imagination and they loom large. The stand is the first book that 
I could put down and walk away from. And I didn't feel super compelled to have to pick it back up. Now, part of that were the life circumstances that I was going through and that you were going through undoubtedly, but that would not have stopped me from it. That would not have stopped me from the dark tower, all seven books. Yeah, I agree. That would not have stopped me from the mist or Salem's lot or a few others. Heck even insomnia, which I think is probably the least favorite book that we have done. Definitely. And I still think it's a great book by saying it's my least favorite. Stephen King is not to say I disliked it. I still couldn't put insomnia down. I still read that really quickly for me. The stand I put down, walked away and looked at while it's collecting a little bit of dust on my coffee table thinking, I don't know if I want to pick that back up. Yeah. And you know, I, we're probably going to get some flack for it because it, it, it's widely known again as one of his best novels. And, and again, I can see why for its time, it was probably fucking groundbreaking. Truly. I mean, and again, when I was reading it, I couldn't put it down, but I didn't have that insatiable appetite to want to continue to pick it up. Like I'm running late for work. I need to put this book down. You know, I would try to read it on lunch breaks and just find myself like, man, I read five or 10 pages and I am a fast reader. Um, and it's not to say that it's not well-written, um, you know, and I do think that maybe the time in between that we had, the break of, of reading it, probably messed, at least it messed up with my head a little bit and my perception of the book, but uh, I don't think it messed with it that much. And we you know what's funny about this book, in many ways, it becomes the most classical style tales. And what do I mean by that? is that it becomes a straightforward narrative of good versus evil. And so many of Stephen King's books, that is not the case. No, there's a, everything's gray. It's very blurry. Some of the characters you really like, but they really dislike. I mean, Roland murders a child in The Gunslinger in the first book, and I still kept on reading that book. <laughs> he murders an innocent child, and I'm like, I got to keep going to yeah. figure out what happens here. Yeah. Just to show how gray his characters can be. And this one, it becomes pretty clear who the good guys are, who the bad guys are. And the, the reason I find it called The Stand is because eventually the good guys need to make a stand right. against the bad guys. And and that doesn't mean the characters aren't interesting or well-developed because they are, but it is one of the, from a plot standpoint, it is very clear to know who's good and who's bad in this novel. And I wonder if having done so much not the stand, like maybe if we had started with the stand, Mm -hmm. it might've been a little different. Sure. But having done so much of the stand, or so many books, pardon me, before the stand, having lived through a global pandemic, having you and I both becoming fathers, having launched a new business, having all of these things going on, hearing a story where people are struggling to figure out what are the laws that they're going to live by at the end of the world was a huge emotional investment for me that was hard for me to put it in. Well, and let's be honest too. I mean, Um, it's not that we're at the end of the world in our in 2022, but our political landscape, the way that people talk to each other in society, the way that the way that the internet and social media rules our communication styles. I mean, people don't know how to communicate well anymore. 
you know, by design. And so to read the stand and just to hear more of that and have that in your face at all times, it was a little like, man, fuck, I'm living through this. I don't necessarily know if I need to dive in, intellectually break this down about what's happening. We do that every fucking day, you know? I totally agree. And I do think that colors our perception a bit. And I think, to me, Stephen King shines as the great postmodernist bard. He's great at deconstructing genre, pulling the wool over our, our, yeah. our eyes, making things really complicated and messy, making things multi- multiple genre. And the stand becomes as complicated and big of a book as it is, it becomes very thematically straightforward. And that is not why I go to Stephen King. It's yeah. why I go to Tolkien. Yeah. It's why I go to J.K. Rowling. It's why I go to so many different authors, but it's not why I go to King. I go to King because I want it to be weird and messy and terrible. Right. And in so many ways, this book is weird, messy, and terrible, but it's really about people that are good fighting the people that are bad. Yeah. And I think to me, that's the one thing if I'm trying to articulate my thoughts as to why I don't put this as one of my favorite Stephen King books, it's extraordinary. Oh yeah. It is an extraordinary book. I don't mean to diminish its achievements, but it's not quite to the level that I found. You mentioned it a few times. I still think it is the most fabulous book I've ever read. Yeah. I really do. And I think that I was expecting an it level experience with the stand. And what I got was a really great, interesting book that is going to yield tons of things for us to talk about, but didn't live up to the hype. Yeah. And I think there, there may be a bit of the way that we chose to do this uh, podcast and that we didn't do it in chronological order. You know, we talk all the time. I'm going to mention Rebecca again. My wife is reading Stephen King from, um, in chronological order, from top to bottom, from the first book he wrote to the last. And that was just sort of a personal choice, kind of outside of the Dark Tower. Um, and in a way, I kind of, because the stand is pretty early on in that, in that uh, lineage. And so maybe if, you know, I mean, we could maybe if this to death, but maybe if we did it that way, we'd have a different opinion on the stand. But I got to be honest. I think living through a global pandemic and living through Trump and living through this crazy fucking political climate that we live in desensitizes us a little bit. And the stand is just like, well, I've seen this before. Yeah, you know, I could visualize this in real life. I could absolutely see this. I could absolutely see it happening. And so in a way, it's it's almost fucking realism in a strange way now, which I'm sure he didn't mean for that to be, but... In 2022, that's the way it is. I mean, if you follow Stephen King on Twitter, and if you're listening to Wheel of Cod, you probably do. And if you don't, follow Stephen King on Twitter. It's awesome. It's awesome. He's a great, great Twitter account to follow. He mentioned during the pandemic, like, oh boy, I didn't mean for this to actually happen. Yeah. Jokingly, in a Stephen King wit kind of way. So we agree. It is a phenomenally well-written book book that's nowhere close to one of our favorites. Yeah. Yeah. And we are unique among most constant readers <laughs> I, who say the stand is their favorite. And folks, if you're listening and you were like waiting for this big pro stand uh uh you know message here, please tell tell us 
why you think we're right or why you think we're wrong. I, I would love to hear it. I agree. It's and I just have to reiterate, it's phenomenal. Yeah. But it's, it's just not for us. It's like when I saw Saving Private Ryan. Yeah. <laughs> when I saw Saving Private Ryan, I was told I was going to see the greatest movie ever made. Yeah, sure. And what I saw was a really good movie, but wouldn't even crack my top 15 of greatest movies, let alone my top 20. And I'm like, oh, I'm kind of disappointed this movie's not that good, everybody. Yeah, yeah, I hear what you're saying. It's a really, really sure good movie, but it's nowhere near going to... It didn't blow me the way I thought I was supposed to be blown away. Yeah. Similar with The Stand. I was expecting it to make me feel really weird because everyone said, it's a good book, but you won't really like it. And, and the ending sucks. Shit. And I'm like, I disagree with all of that. And then The Stand is his masterpiece and being like... I kind of think it's the opposite. Yeah. All right, let's yeah. talk about some Dark Tower references oh, in this thing. Let's. One of the unique things that happened, since I finished the book before you for yeah. the first time, I think, <laughs> since we've done this podcast, <laughs> I went back and re-listened to the audiobook of Wizard and Glass. Yeah, that's right. And listened to the, the front and the back half of it. And then I listened to Wolves of the Kala and then Song of Susanna, and now I'm listening to The Dark Tower. So I just started, I'm just listening to The Dark Tower again. So I have a lot of Dark Tower references that I'd like to peel apart, but I'd like you, tell me, what are your Dark Tower links, nods that you want to call out? So probably my favorite one is um, is Kojak. So this is kind of the first novel where I don't believe a dog or a pet was uh, savagely killed. Um, and so Kojak, to me, reminds me a lot of Oi. And we were talking about this earlier today, you know, that there's such a vital innocence and, and a vital piece of that group is Kojak. I mean, he, he lingers throughout the book a little bit here and there, but plays a vital role in the end, you know, and of, of saving major characters in this, I'm not going to say Katet, because I don't really think they are, but in this group you know, sort of akin to the Losers Club, but I think the Losers Club were Cotet. I just don't think the bond is as strong as it is with Eddie, Susanna, Jake, and Oi. Okay, I disagree with that, but really? we'll, we'll have to put a pin on that. Okay, we'll, we'll have put to a come back that. to that. Yeah, we'll put a pin on that. Because we will just talk about that yeah. until we're done. No, that's fine. Continue with your Dark but Tower yeah. references. So I, I have that Oi reference. There, um, I believe it is the judge who after he sees Randall flag in the mirror while he's staying in that, in that motel, he sees the crow. Um, he thinks about Ka and considers whether Ka is real or not. And if his life has actually been dictated this entire time by Ka or not, I quite, li- I squealed, squealed like a piggy. When I, <laughs> when I read that, I was like, Oh, this, is- I love this. Um, you have uh, clearly Randall Flagg. We don't have to talk about that. I mean, the, the red eyes, the eyes of the Crimson King. Um, one of the things that we had talked about was uh, the necklace pieces and it being possibly a piece of Black 13. Um, You're talking about the amulets. Yeah, that, that, that Randall Flagg's people Randall wear. Randall Flagg's people wear. They're black amulets that have a red dot in the center. Yeah. And there are moments in the Dark Tower when they pick up Black 13 where they see a red dot in the center which is the Eye of the Crimson King. Yeah. I think those are the major... I mean, there's obviously a lot of influence here and there. There's also a lot of Lord of the Rings influence, too, that we could talk about. Uh, But in terms of the tower, those are probably the biggest things that stood out to me. 
I've got a few that I noted here. Some there are so many that I stopped noting them. Yeah. But a few that I felt were fun enough to pick out that I wrote down in my notes here. So when the trash can man is talking about his past and his memories, and he comes back to his mother and the sheriff, the sheriff says, what do you expect? They root him down there. Yep. 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 Which is from the wolves of the Kala, where they talk about the children who get root. Nick and Tom Collins get trapped in a barn when a tornado happens. Uh, and uh-huh. there is the quote from Susan Delgado in um, Wizard and Glass, where if it's caught, it'll come like a wind and your plans will stand before it no more than a barn before a cyclone. We literally have characters in a barn with a cyclone. God damn it. Yeah, that's another one that I picked out that I thought was really cool. When Trash Can Man pledges himself to Randall Flagg, yep. he says, my life for you. Mm-hmm. And when TikTok Man pledges himself to Randall Flagg, he says, my life for you. Yeah, I mean, TikTok Man and the Trash Can Man are very similar. Pretty, pretty similar. I can't help but notice the similarities between Tom Cullen and Shimi Ruiz. Both are mis, uh, not misunderstood, but... Both are underestimated yep. by people. Yep. That push comes to shove can do extraordinary things. Shimi is an incredible telepath who can puncture the multiverse with his mind. Tom Cullen's mind is strong enough that that Nick Andros can puncture the veil between life and death and speak to him and guide him through the <sighs> last stage of the adventure. Fucking Tom Cullen. It is very Shimi Ruiz-like. <sighs> And Tom, or I should say, Shimi Ruiz is very Tom Cullen like because Tom Cullen came first. Well, M O O N, that spells Shimi. Kojak is a lot like Oi to me. When Larry Underwood is dead, he has, he is thin with a, or he's at the end of the story before his death. He's described as being tall, thin, with long hair and a beard, just like Eddie was before Eddie Dean dies. Yep. Yep. Um, there's just a lot of other things in there. I think there, there's more. I didn't write all of them down. Not to mention that in the Dark Tower, our quartet, they go to this where and when. Yep. They are in the world with the super flu. They see references to the Dark Man. The walking dude. When Randall Flagg shows up in Wizard and Glass, he's wearing the same clothes yep. with the jean jacket the and the pins with the worn and the down heels. Yep. So he's wearing those same boots there in that. And so, you know, this this story is so intimately linked with the Dark Tower, and the Dark Tower is so intimately linked with this. When the Dark Tower needs to get itself from mid-world to end world, its stopping point is Captain Trips. When Roland is discussing the erosion of the beams, he talks about how things like superflues are a version of a beam quake. Yep. He talks about that in Wolves of the Kala, that they're at this world with a superflu. Well, that's a direct result of a beam snapping. Mm-hmm. So all of this story fits very neatly into the Dark Tower. And it's clear that as Stephen King is writing the Dark Tower, He's going back to the stand and pulling things from the stand as inspiration for and connection to the Dark Tower. Yeah, absolutely. There's no question. 100%. I think this is, in many ways, the most Tower-adjacent, even though like Insomnia is literally about the Crimson King, 
Patrick Danville is a character in it. This one felt the most spiritually akin to the Dark Tower. Oh, sure. And and this is where I want to bring up the thing we just put a pin to. I think these characters are a true quartet. And the reason I do is even before they meet each other, they start sharing dreams, Mm, which is a big part of of a quartet is having a connection so big that there's a psychic connection. You you ever watch an argument die? (laughs) Have you ever seen that? It's just a different interpretation. No, 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 no. Because you're absolutely right. I mean, I didn't even really make the connection. You're absolutely right. I mean, if they're all having, of course they're quartet if they're all having the same dreams. Another connection to the Dark Tower. There's the character Ted Brodigan, who is in the uh, prison in Thunderclap Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. with the Breakers. And his psychic ability is to facilitate, which is to amplify others' people's psychic ability. Are not Mother Abigail and the the man in black, Randall Flagg, are they not facilitators? Oh, sure. Have they not just increased the psychic ability of others around them? So I think they operate with a very similar form of the touch, but it's only possible because they are a quartet of sorts. Do they have like the ceremonies that Roland has? No, but they all come together and they all have this ability to connect. It is Franny's precognitive psychic ability when Harold and Nadine have planted a bomb to kill the free zone that says we need to get out of here. And they almost all psychically communicate, which only results in the death of two of them. Right. Nick being one of them. Right. Otherwise they're all dead. Oh yeah. Oh, or at least most of them are compromised. A hundred percent. No question. All right. So do you have any other tower references you'd like to talk about? No, no, not really. So I guess this is the $64,000 question. What specific? do you think? Yes. Is that specific? It's $64,000. Oh, I could use that. What do you think this book's all about? You know, that's a great question. I- I'm not entirely sure that I've processed that enough. I mean, clearly an overarching, we've talked about this a bunch already, but this, the literal fight for good versus evil, the fight for the soul of America, you know, uh, or, or what is to become of, of America. Um, I think I, I'd like to use Larry as the example. So I started to get into this earlier, kind of like I always do. I start talking about the shit that I want to talk about later on in this podcast within the first like three and a half minutes. And then Derek's like, put a pin in it. We're going to talk about that later. Get yourself together. So Larry, when I first started reading this book and anybody can go back and listen to the first episode, I fucking hated Larry. I hated him. I hated everything about him. He was pure, unadulterated, white male privilege. He had a little bit of fucking fame. He had a little bit of money and he thought he was king of the world. However, it's interesting because I thought he was going to be the one character that never changed. Really, that, that, that didn't have an arc. I, I fully expected him to go over to Randall Flagg's side. And instead, I was greeted with a man who, at the very end, who, had, who did make the stand who stood up to the face of evil and finally, after shitty decision, after shitty decision, made the first decision where he was not the epicenter. 
And I talked to you about this. I think it was about a week, a couple weeks ago. And it got me thinking, you know, part of what I think this story is about is the redemption for an individual human soul. Can it happen? Can a person, despite all of the odds, despite a, a, a literal epidemic that wipes out humanity almost to its core to where a supernatural being comes out to do the rest can you stand up for what is fucking right and what is true and that's connection with people that you care about people you love people who you spent time you've invested in and is that more powerful than just wanting to watch the world burn and I think it is. And I think we have a lot to think about with the stand in what's happening in our own culture right now. And I mean that. You know, we don't get political on this podcast for a very specific reason. But just like we as human beings, we're fucking lost. And we're scrambling around and we're trying to figure it out at all times. And that's what they're doing in the stand too. I mean, even Randall Flagg doesn't have it together. He doesn't even know what to do. He's got more power than anyone. And he squanders it. And so I think this fight, this literal stand for the human soul, can I, on the brink of destruction, do the right thing? I think that is a very powerful question. And I think there are two characters to me that we can track to understand the heart of what the, the stand is about, at least in my interpretation. One of them is Larry. And... I'll go with the one that I think is the other one, who I think these characters are in many way mirrors. The other one is Harold. Oh, of course. And the reason I think that Larry Underwood is selfish, he, is, he gets all the girls, he is living this dream life that's hedonistic with he's music, a like his mom's, booze, he's a taker. drugs, his first encounter with a somewhat decent woman his selfishness drives her to commit suicide slash yep. accidentally overdose. He is a true piece of garbage. Yeah. He sucks. He is the embodiment of privilege and excess that defines the white man in the late 20th century, mm -hmm. early 21st century. Mm -hmm. He's everything that's wrong with America. Conversely, you have Harold, who's quiet and shy who's into writing books and eating candy bars. A little overweight. Who's harmless, who starts this story wanting to do right by Franny and wanting to protect her and wanting to stand up and be a man for the first time in his life and do something noble for a woman. And as the story progresses, Harry, I'm sorry, Larry at each interval gets less and less selfish and more and more altruistic. Whereas Harold gets more and more withdrawn and more and more selfish. Yeah. At that precipice, we have two characters, two parallel tracks. One that starts with more selfless motivations in Harold, who ends up a complete and total tool of the, the man in black or the walking dude, I should say in the stand parlance. And another one who starts off an insufferable womanizing drug user who ends up sacrificing his life for the sins of others. 
And I think the lesson to me is that the end of the world will have both. That question mm-hmm. about once we rip away the veneer of civilization, once we rip away all of the structures and institutions telling us to behave the way we need to tell, there's going to be heralds and there's going to be Larry's. Yeah. And you as an individual have the choice to determine which one you will be. Harold, when he um, admits and he sends the recording that he blew up the free zone, says, I do this of my own free will. Mm -hmm. And uh, Larry, at the very end, makes the choice to go with Stu and Glenn and Ralph into the West, knowing very well that it'll be their death. And Larry gets a sort of precog intuition as he's going to his execution that his death will mean the redemption of others. And he looks at his own death, he looks at his own captors and forgives them and says, I know you don't really mean this. You don't really know what you're doing. Deep in your hearts, you know it's wrong, but I know you're going to do it anyway. So go ahead and do it because I know that this death will mean that freedom can live on. And he becomes so altruistic that he will sacrifice himself for others so that they can live and be free versus Harold who becomes so selfish. He will do everything he can to kill others. So they cannot be free. He becomes a fucking incel. He's the incel before there were incels before there were incels, you know, and, and, and Harold in the beginning, you know, I find myself wanting to root for him, but at the same time, it's like, Hey dude, you're young. You have, you can have whatever you want in this society. And, and, And instead, you know, you got a little, uh, you got a little handy action, and you went nuts. You went crazy. I think he went crazy before that. Yeah, he probably did. I mean, you know, he wants to kill Franny and Stu and you know and Nick and take them all out. And it, it and there is an interesting sort of flipping of traditional Judeo-Christian values happening mm-hmm. in this, in that the characters that are having healthy consensual adult sex are the ones coping with things better than the ones who are, especially among the group of heroes that aren't having that. Right. Both Harold and Nadine have a, a thing that's similar that they are both really, really horny and not getting off. Yeah. yeah. And it is that horniness that opens up the gateway for uh, the walking dude, for Randall flag to psychically get into their brains and be like, yeah, if you come with me, you'll get all the ass you want. Yep. And, and they do it. And that is interesting because traditional Judeo-Christian values value celibacy. Right. The lack of sex being the highest spiritual plane that a person can be in. Mm-hmm. That's why priests don't have sex in right. the Catholic Church. Or at the very least, strict monogamy where you only have sex with one person for forever. Well, all of those Judeo-Christian values don't really exist among our group of heroes. They're not living by them. But the ones with healthy, productive sex lives are the ones that Randall Flagg cannot penetrate. Yeah. I see, see what, what I did, did there? Yeah. <laughs> he cannot penetrate. Oh, boy. No, but it's true. It's true. And, and, and you know, it's interesting to, to juxtapose those two characters because I really, I mean, I had written off Larry. I mean, I think I went on a tangent last time. It was a year ago, so I don't know. We both did. You know, I we be, both hated him. Because he was, cause he was awful. And and even up until the very end, uh, there was a part of me that was like, is he being 
is he being serious? And then at the end, when he really does sacrifice himself, you're like, okay, he, he was, you know, he, he absolutely was. Um, I have another theory about this book too, if you'll permit me. Of course. I'm going to argue something. So Stephen King has said that the stand was his attempt to do an American version of the Lord of the Rings. And that stands up. There's a lot of analysis out there about it, but I will also argue that he is telling a deeply Christian story and that in many ways, this story represents the transition from old Testament God to new Testament God. Wait, what? So I think this is a very Christian book. Stephen King has actually come out and said that it is quote, dark Christianity end quote about the stand. So a few things to highlight here. If this were a biblical story, mother Abigail would be Moses. She would be Moses and she would be representing the old version, the old Mm. Testament God, Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. God that is a little more ornery and more willing to wipe everyone out. Mm -hmm. So Moses lived in a time where the Egyptians hold Uh, held the ancient Hebrew within slavery and that Moses leads them out of slavery to the promised land. Moses does not actually get to the promised land, but what does he do? He brings forth the 10 commandments. He brings forth law and order Mm -hmm. so that when they get to the promised land, the ancient Hebrew will know how to live to please God. Mother Abigail lives in a world where God is angry, God is vengeful, but her job as chosen by God is to lead people to this promised land, and she is not able to take part in it. We see Mother Abigail refuse to actually take part of the political system of the free zone, and we see that once she gets there, she realizes that she has this horrible pride, so much so that she leaves the free zone and she dies. I will give you a quote here. This is of Mother Abigail. Oh, Nick, Mother Abigail said, I have harbored hate of the Lord in my heart. Every man or woman who loves him, they hate him too, because he's a hard God, a jealous God. He is what he is. And in this world, he's apt to repay service with pain, while those who do evil ride over the roads in Cadillac cars. Even the joy of serving him is bitter. I do his will, but the human part of me has cursed him in my heart. Abby, the Lord says to me, there's work for you far ahead. So I'll let you live and live until your flesh is bitter on your bones. I'll let you see all your children die ahead of you and still you walk the earth. I'll let you see your daddy's land taken away piece by piece. And in the end, your world will be to go with strangers from all the things you love best, and you'll die in a strange land with the work not yet finished. That's my will, Abby, says he, and yes, says I. Thy will be done, and my heart I curse him. Why, why, why? And the only answer I get is, where were you when I made the world? This is Abigail confessing to a mosaic version, an Old Testament version of God. Okay, so you've convinced me now that Mother Abigail is Moses. Go on. 
There are a few other things I want to point out, too, about Mother Abigail. Please. Because I think she's essential to understanding the spiritual part of this. Just so every listener knows right now, I have nothing to add to this. Nothing. So I'm just going to sit back and let you blow my mind for a few minutes, if that's okay with you. Yep. Because I didn't think about this at all. Once she gets to the free zone, I would also argue she transitions a little more into a New Testament figure, which is John the Baptist. Mm -hmm. And the reason I say that, John the Baptist is a prophet who is practicing ancient Hebrew religion, not Christianity, but is an usherer between the two. That's right. And what does John the Baptist do? He baptizes Baptizes Jesus. Mm -hmm. And John the Baptist is considered to be a saint as well as a prophet. And in many ways, what does Mother Abigail do? She takes our group of heroes and she baptizes them into faith. And they now realize that they live in a a new society that is quasi-secular, quasi-religious, and they themselves are the chosen people by her. So I think she is mostly Moses with a little bit of John the Baptist in there. (laughs) Yep. So a few other things I want to point out. (laughs) Please. Of the main characters, not all human in the free zone, we have Stu, Franny, Nick, Tom, Colin, Larry, Glenn, Ralph, Kojak, Susan, Diana, Lucy, and Judd Ferris. Twelve. God damn it. We have twelve apostles. apostles. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So we have twelve apostles, which is not an accident. No. That of all no. of the main characters that get any <clears throat> point of view whatsoever, there are twelve of them. Thirteen, if you include Harold, who would be... Black 13. He'd be Judas. Yeah, he'd be Judas. Oh, 100%. So Harold sure. is the Judas. Nadine is, is Mary Madeline. Uh-huh. And now, a few other things to point out. If we look at the world that Randall Flagg is building, one, it's in a desert. Where does most of the stories of the Bible happen? In, in ancient Judea, yeah. which is a desert, desert climate for the most part. And yes, all scholars of ancient history and theology, I know that they were really good at agriculture and they are really good at irrigation. <laughs> but yes, fundamentally, that's desert territory. Uh-huh. And what kind of society is Randall Flagg building? An imperial might makes right society. Mm-hmm. What's Randall Flagg's favorite method of execution? Crucifixion. Crucifixion. When we see Larry... An under- upside down crucifixion, which is actually how it happened. And when we see Larry Underwood, he is described as thin, yeah. emaciated. Well, you were saying that. Long hair. You know, it's with funny. With a long beard. And what does he do? He sacrifices himself for the rest of the people. For I, I the see, sins of others. You know, it's funny because you were talking to me not too long ago. One last point. Yeah, please. And then I will open it up for you. And in the end, Larry's sacrifice, as well as Glenn's and Ralph's, mm-hmm. I'll throw them in there as well, that sacrifice ends up allowing people to be free and live in the world And what do they start to do? Immediately build a world of sin. Mm. So much so that Stu, who in a, if this were Lord of the Rings, would be the Aragorn character who returns home and is the good king, takes his wife and their child and says, we're not going to live in this. Just as much as Jesus dies for the sins of others, but the world that came after was still sinful. Right. You know, it's funny. You've been talking about for the last few days about this this idea that you've you've had 
about what the book is about. And it's funny because when you started talking about Larry, I was like, man, that sounds a lot like Jesus. Are we, are we? And then he brought up judo, you know, Judeo Christian traditions. And it was like, oh fuck. Are we going to, I, you blew my mind. God damn it. This happens every time. I never thought about that. Never, never put that to, that together until now. Cause I'm so hyper-focused on how it connects to the tower that that would have never crossed my fucking mind. Now I got to figure out all of the 12 apostles. Who's who? Yeah. And and you could go through them and probably pick them apart. I didn't do that. No, I do that for fun. Like a nerd. I was going online and seeing if there were anyone else other than me that kind of noticed this. And I found it. Oh my God, I should have written this down because I'm a plug this essay. This dude who is a pastor who talks about reading the stand as a fundamental moment that helped him go on his journey of faith. Wow. And that he reads this very similar as a transition from old Testament thinking about God to new Testament thinking about God. And I'm like, that's the only person that I found that drew that connection. Yeah. I mean, it makes total sense. And then I found, you know, Stephen King's quote that it's dark Christianity. Yeah. That he is find that uh, he has said that, I found that I, you know what? I didn't write it down. Just somewhere. somewhere. I found it online doing my research that he called it dark Christianity and internet hold me accountable. If that's a misquote, I do want to know because I didn't bring my source. I'm the history guy and I didn't bring my source. So Fucking I apologize. Shameful. Very shameful. This is the last episode of the wheel of Cobb. We've been shut down. I will go to the Western <laughs> retreat without my guns. Uh, so I do think there's something to it that, that Stephen King intentionally was doing a Lord of the Rings in America. And Lord of the Rings was based heavily on the folklore and myths of ancient Germanic Mm -hmm. and Anglo people. And he took those myths and he recontextualized them and he turned them into a modern narrative. And inherently American. And King is doing this. He wants to do an American Lord of the Rings. So what myth does he go to? What story does he go to? A story that binds America together for better or worse? It's the story of America's relationship to the Bible and our different interpretations of it. And and it's interesting, the quote we had at the beginning with Harold talking about Darwin, that the man in black is just cold rationality, but it's of the people of the free zone to figure out their new version of faith, which will guide them to the next version of America, which the book kind of cynically says will be just like the old one. And I'm, and I'm pretty sure that's probably how King would think that sort of cynicism is, is to his up to his level, but it mirrors the story of Jesus because Jesus died on the cross, but sin itself did not die. Yeah. And sin itself will not die in this world. God damn it, Derek. God damn it. I got to start paying harder attention in these books. I'm just not getting wrapped up in plot and character all the time. There's nothing wrong with getting wrapped up in Ugh. plot and character. So that's my theory about what it's all about. Yeah, I mean, that makes a lot of sense. Yep. And so let's talk more about some of these characters. Is there any character, anything you want to dive into? I have I have one other thing I'd like to bring up, but I'd like I just talked for like an hour, so... No, you know, it's it's interesting. I, I don't know if I want to talk about one character in particular or if I would like to talk about 
how this group of characters, maybe maybe this this group of 12, it's interesting how they ch- they all chose at the same time to build a like-minded um, community. And the fact that it was important to them to hold on to certain tradition, to hold on to uh, democratic opinion, that that matters, that the people who built the town, built, built the community, have a say. You know, that they did go back to the people. Now, obviously, you're going to see some... Um, some inconsistencies and people who, you know, if you get voted in or, oh, we think this person should lead, blah, 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 whatever, that power could have went to their heads and and it really didn't at the end of the day. The people who did lead stepped up, went to the West, did what needed to be done. And to me, I constantly, I think one of the things I love about Stephen King as a writer is this idea of the quartet, this idea of a group of people who are destined to figure out how to get through this evil, this roadblock that's in front of them. And easily the free zone could have become, which it did, ended up becoming wildly privileged, wildly opinionated. Us versus them. You can see that written all over. I think that's just part of human nature. We've talked about this before. Humans are really bad at not being selfish. We have to choose to be community. And I think the one thing that, that watching Stephen King write, listening to his voice about how that community is built, how it's maintained, how it's retained. I think that's what I enjoyed about the stand. Can I ask you something in that point? Yeah. With the character Lloyd, who starts on a crime spree, he ends up part of the dark man, yeah. Randall Flagg's community. I feel like Stephen King redeems him a little. Like, he's a bad character doing bad things, but he has a moment when people are starting to realize that Randall Flagg's not this all-powerful god and they're jumping ship. And he says, for better or worse, this guy kind of bailed me out of a jam, so I'm going to stay here, but I won't stop you. I feel like... Lloyd is a character that in that post-apocalyptic question, do you rise or do you fold? He starts a vicious murderer, resorts to cannibalism to stay alive, gets you know sucked into the, the, the Randall Flagg's orbit, and he's actually trying to do his best with it and not trying to be super tyrannical and terrible. He's absolutely afraid of the dark man, He's absolutely in fear of his magic, but there's a part of him that also says he got me out of prison and saved my life. So I'm better or worse. I kind of made my bed. This is to say, can there be some redemption for Nazis? (sighs) My immediate answer is no, no, because at the end of the day, you're, you're still willing to build a society that is predicated on going over and wiping out the other half. No, I don't think there is. No. I don't think I could even entertain it. But at the very least, he paints Lloyd as very human. Yeah, well, because I think Lloyd is. I think I think humans can be shitty. There are really great humans, and there are really fucking shitty humans. And I think Lloyd, I mean, even though, okay, yeah, Lloyd feels this weird sense of dedication because Randall Flagg saved his life to be used, therefore, as his puppet. 
So, like, I don't know. I, I, there's nothing honorable to me in, oh, well, I need to dedicate my life to the fucking murderer crazy, you know, wizard that saved my life. I, I don't know. Well, Lloyd could have ratted out the people that were leaving and sure. killed them all. Sure. He and didn't. he didn't. He didn't. He, I, I, I think there is something to be said to the lieutenants of evil and that we should, yes, they're still the lieutenants of evil. We shouldn't weep for them when they blow up in the nuclear blast that ends evil, but they are still human beings. There is a still fundamental building block of empathy that says maybe if we were murdering psychopaths before the world ended, and we're trapped in prison, and someone magically got us out, we could see, you know... Now that I'm saying that out loud, it sounds really stupid. Well, it's not that it's stupid. It's not that it's stupid. The one, the one place where I push back is that Lloyd still continuously treats the women that he sleeps with like dog shit. And so to me, it's like, uh, I just think you're making most of your decisions out of fear of your boss. And you're not going to rat somebody out because if you do, Randall Flagg could turn around and think, oh, well, this guy's, he's a fucking rat. I'm going to take out him. You know, I, I don't know. Yeah. It, it, it just feels point. very disingenuous. Like, I see where your point of view is, though, because he does. He makes a lot of human decisions. But you know what? Shitty people are human, too. And shitty people do probably make one or two few good decisions, yeah. uh, you know, down the line. But it's like Tom Cullen, who is in Randall Flagg's society, gets accepted. And for a second there, you're kind of lulled into thinking, well, this isn't so bad. But Tom Cullen knows, like, no, this is bad. This is bad. This isn't the same. This doesn't feel right. This is not like the free zone. I mean, people these are, are rose-colored glasses. People here aren't all, but he, Tom Cullen does make this reflection that people aren't awful this world they're building is, is awful. Because and I think that's a, an important distinction. Well, and that's the thing, right? Because humans have autonomy. Like, we can choose to be part of the free zone if we all wanted to. We could. We have the fucking capability to do it. But for some reason, somebody's got to ruin that. People have to believe, well, no, you know what? My rights are being taken away. My blah, blah, blah is being stripped. My blah, 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 they're taking my job. Whatever it is. I mean, Randall Flagg is using all of that. Make no mistake. The, the subtext that we don't read in this book, I could see Randall Flagg having giant rabble-rousing you know, crowds. You know, The people that he's bringing in, he's making speeches every night. You know what I mean? He's building a military autocracy based upon suppression of free will. Right. They and have no opinion. They have no, they're not, able, exactly. They're not able to do anything they want to do. Randall Flagg has thoughts on who's going to lead his secret police. He's going to completely annihilate the free zone and build this tyrannical society with him at the top. And it's all based out of fear. All of it. Yeah. And when you make decisions based out of fear, you're, you're not, clear-headed and you're you're certainly not making decisions for the better of humanity i agree with that wholeheartedly and lloyd is afraid of randall flag yeah. the entire time but i think it's worth noting that people people could still have a kernel of good in them even despite all of the the shit absolute blood and terribleness Man. That people drives are, them into these terrible regimes. People are multifaceted. We're fucking complicated. 
We're not all good. We're not all bad. We've all made decisions. We wish that we all have done things we wish we didn't do. You know, I just think that at the end of the day, when you lie with the wolves like that every night, you, you get up every morning and say, you know what? That Randall flag, what he stands for, that's the right thing. There's something off. And I think that's one of the central themes of the book, which is choice. Because some people who heard the lights were on in Las Vegas, got there, saw what was happening, and were like, all right, we need to get out of here. This is not right. And as soon as they saw their chance to leave, leave. And they asked Lloyd, and Lloyd stayed. Yeah, he did. He could have left. He has a moment to choose to leave, and he stayed. No, he's not a fucking rat. Cool. You did the bare minimum of what honorable people do. Great. And he was already a... But it is, King, in so many ways in this book with characters starting simple and Mm -hmm. becoming more complicated. He definitely is a part of that group. No question. And that is, like, a lot of these characters start very simple. Not all of them. Like, Franny's very complicated at the start. Mm -hmm. I would say Franny's the most complicated at the start, whereas Stu's pretty simple. He's just a Texan good old boy who drinks beer and smokes cigarettes at the gas station, (laughs) you know, and gets more complicated Lloyd's pretty simple. He's a sociopathic criminal. It yep. gets more complicated. Larry's very simple, selfish musician. It yep. gets more complicated. Nick's pretty complicated from the beginning, yeah, too, absolutely. I would say. I would I would agree. Um, and proves himself to be the smartest of all the characters in many ways. You know, Glenn is complicated by profession. You know what I mean? Like, he's very, very intelligent. But at the end of the day, I think he's a pretty simple person. Yeah, absolutely. You know? He's very academically gifted. Oh, you know who we haven't mentioned at all is Ralph. Ralph Brentner, another guy, middle of the road, very dedicated. Another Christian theme. Christianity takes place with a man being born to some of the poorest people in his community who grows up to then become someone who sacrifices his life for others. There's many moments in this where the book sort of valorizes the common everyday person. Oh, 100%. Mother Abigail has this whole thing about Ralph, and I forget, I should have wrote, written this down, where Ralph is the kind of guy who's not the smartest, most mm-hmm. elegant, but when an engine breaks, he knows where to put his finger so it works. She says it more elegantly in the book, that he's the kind of guy that knows how to do basic things that work, and how much she appreciates that. And how much it's needed. I mean, the truth is somebody like Ralph is needed in a situation like this. Somebody who knows the basics. Somebody who knows how to get a car started. Somebody who knows how to get the lights on. How to feed people. How to, how to get people riled up. Come on, we need to band together and do something that's going to help the community. And the thing is, is that in, in a world that's obsessed with money and fame and, and riches, you forget about those people. You forget about that those are the people that actually make our world work, our country run. You forget about those people. I totally agree with because that. Because it's not fucking flashy. It's not sexy. It's not money. But those people are vital to a sense of community. It's a common theme in Stephen King's book where the, the quote-unquote common man, mm-hmm. the quote-unquote average human being who can step up and is there when they need it, but that's also a common theme 
of Christianity mm-hmm. and American mythic self-identity that we are an entire country that's extraordinary because we're an entire country made of just the common people and we made something extraordinary. And I, I think that's why we talk about Stephen King being the American wordslinger because he understands this country very, very well. I mean, he is a part of it, and I think a lot of the reason why he writes about this middle-class upbringing in America is because that's what he had. And I think he views himself very much, as brilliant as he is, I would bet that he probably views himself as a pretty, like, blue-collar, run-of-the-mill American. I could guarantee it. I mean, just in his interviews, the guy walks around in fucking stonewashed jeans. It's 2022. He's probably one of the richest authors ever. And this guy's walking around from jeans in the 90s and like an old flannel that his dad gave him. (laughs) You know what I mean? Like he is, he just, he's one of those. I mean, he is an intellectual, but he feels very much of this country. And, and, And I think that's why he writes so much from that point of view. Yeah, I completely 100% agree with all of that. Could I tell you some things I'd like to talk about with the trash can man? Of course. Yeah. Yes. I, I want to just highlight a few things. I thought this character was very compelling and interesting. It was my wife, Laurel, who points out that by the time that trash can man brings the nuclear bomb to the West, which explodes and ends Randall Flagg's community that at that point he's kind of like Smeagol or Gollum from Lord mm-hmm. of the Rings. Mm-hmm. He's completely mutilated. He's just like, ah, my precious, I don't want to destroy you, but I'll, I'll bring the actual destruction. Yep. Yep. And he's just in love with the quote unquote, the ring, which is the man in black, which I thought was really interesting. And another way this book is like the, the Lord of the Rings part of me, but I found something else really interesting about his backstory. Mm-hmm. So the trash can man is the product of an edible complex. So in his story, we learned that the trash can man's father was mentally ill and goes on a killing spree. In that killing spree, the gun explodes and it blinds the trash can man's father. Oedipus Rex, as in Sophocles, blinds himself when right. he realizes mm-hmm. that he killed his mother, he's killed his father, married his mother. And then the sheriff guns down the trash can man's father. And then what does he do? He marries trash can man's mother. Right. Once he realizes that trash can man is a pyromaniac as a kid, the father then sends the son to the mental institution where he gets quote root because he suffers electroshock therapy, which permanently embeds his consciousness into this infantile state where all he knows how to do is love burning rather than to grow up and to become a full self-actualized man. In this way, the Oedipal complex played out the death of the father and the possession of the mother happens to be usurped by the sheriff. So the trash can man stays as a child for forever. This is mirrored in some other stories. This happens in Hamlet. When that's the first thing I thought about when Hamlet's uncle kills his father and then takes possession of the family and Hamlet gets stunted and he cannot grow because there's a usurpation. It also happens in the Hesiod, which is the origin of the Greek gods Mm -hmm. in which uh, Saturn overthrows Uranus 
but then then Jupiter must overthrow Saturn, where that the father stunts the growth of the child, locked in this Oedipal complex. And then once the trash can man gets his quote-unquote father figure, the true father, the dark man, he'll do anything for him. But because his pyromania is the only thing he knows, he can't help but thwart and self-sabotage by blowing up a plane and then... The dark man's just like, okay, we have to kill him. E.g., I have to, as Saturn, devour my young, which then leads the trash can man to have this Smeagol-like thing to bring the nuclear bomb in, which then ends up killing him. So long story short, it is the trash can man's Oedipal complex that is his main motivation that gets him to the point to being the Gollum-like figure. You know, I, I wish... That people could could watch me listen to you explain these things because my jaw was hanging open and I was kind of looking at you like my daughter looks at me sometimes like I, I, I know you and I love you, but I don't really trust anything that's happening right now. And I looked at you that entire time. I heard every word you said and agreed with it. Never thought about it. Blew my mind. <laughs> I'm glad. Absolutely. I'm glad. I mean, that makes a lot of sense. It's it's funny how you have to also understand something. Sigmund Freud's a friend of mine, so I'm <laughs> always looking for Freud in everything. Well, I, well, and it always shows up because maybe Freud was right about a lot of things. Well, and and also I think one of the things that Stephen King does very very well is, you know, we talk a lot about how he doesn't focus a lot on plot. He focuses a lot on character and circumstance. And I think within that, you know, clearly he's pulling inspiration from so many different places in the world, mythology, religion, his own life, you know, the, the mythology of America. And I think it, to break these things down in the way that you do, I mean, I would have never thought about that, but as we go through it and you explain it, it, it makes a lot of sense. You know, thinking about the trash can man, like I said, I mean, the trash can man and the TikTok man remind me a lot of each other. And there is a lot of that, there's the same metaphor in, in the TikTok man as well. And I think that Stephen King, within these stories, builds up these characters that have such elaborate backstories. You know, we get a lot of flashbacks from Stephen King. We get a lot of, you know, I mean, the black spot. We get a lot of, of flashbacks to where we get a whole fucking book in the Dark Tower. It's a giant flashback. And those flashbacks, while... They can be, in, in film terms, they can sort of be a, a, a trope, you know, a plot trope or a plot hole. With Stephen King, they, they, they really, really add to the essence of the character to understand where they've come from and where they've ended up now as to, why, as to where their trauma has brought them, which is a lot of what you talk about with the trash can man, where his trauma has brought him to this point, to the point where he fucking... <laughs> Destroys the entire West Coast with no problem. You know, so, so I, I, it's a very astute observation. I would have never thought about that myself. Well, you know why Stephen King uses flashback, right? You know why? Because cause a wheel uh, and its only job is to turn. Yeah. And the past and the present are happening simultaneously. Yeah. yeah. That makes sense. Because cause a wheel. <laughs> Anything else you want? I, I've hit everything. There's so much we could talk about. I mean, about. there is. And, and, and I don't think we have to break it all down because I, 
it's long. It's, it's a big book. There's a lot that happens. I mean, I think we talked about everything we wanted to, you know, in, especially in terms of the way that it relates to the tower. Me too. And I, I adore this project. The stand was a challenge. It was. Most of it was life circumstances, but we, are, we did it. We did it. And that's the other thing. We, I mean, we conquered the white whale. This, it's a fucking hard book. I mean, even if we had read it straight through, it still might have taken me a few weeks to sit down and want to record this because there is so much to think. What do I talk about? You know, how, how do I relate it to the tower? How am I, am I just cherry picking moments? Am I really connecting my thoughts about how this book relates to the tower? Does it make sense? The other thing to think about too, is that, you know, there were only, there was only one dark tower book officially written when the stand came out. You know, so he's pulling, I mean, he's weaving things that he meant to weave together years earlier before that, decades before that. It's, it's, I still find myself sometimes being like, man, that's brilliant. If there is the brilliance of Stephen King, despite any faults, any, whatever, whatever criticism you have of him, he made the multiverse cool before it was cool. And in my view, yes, critically engaged with Stephen King but he is still the greatest writer known to me. Mm. Mm. Yeah, greatest since Shakespeare and then and Homer. I mean, certainly in terms of characters, people that I feel like I know, people I feel like I've been in the same room with, I've shared life experience with, I mean, he makes those characters vivid. You know, and especially, like I said, I mean, the American experience in it, through a certain lens, at least. Larry, Franny, Nick, Tom Cullen, Stu, these names are going to mean a lot to me going forward. And in this way, The Stand is one of the most successful books I've ever read, though it was hard for me to read it mm-hmm. in the world and the time that I'm reading it. I do think there is something really special, and I do think he succeeds in creating the Lord of the Rings for America, but for the love of God, Cy King, you should have made this more than one book. Yeah, I mean, really. You really should have broke <sighs> this one up, dude. My God. It'd be a lot easier if this were two it's or three books. fucking tone. Please, for the love of God. And I, and I understand that, like, I mean, even if you get rid of 400 pages, right, it's still a 900-page book, almost. I mean, what the fuck? You know what I mean? You know what I mean? Like, it's still a big book. It's, it's a book that should have been broken up, in my opinion. In my opinion. It would have been easier to have read a book, taken a break, read a book, taken a break, read a book. All right, I completed the Stan trilogy. Well, in that vein, I think uh, we have decided what the next book will be. Because, drumroll, please... We are going to read The Shining. Oh, yeah. I've never read it. I've never read it before. This will be my third time. Oh, Rebe- Rebecca tells twice. me that she's like, you're going to love it. I'm like, I, I bet. But I'm, I'm very excited. So, yeah, we decided to do one that's a little shorter. Now that we're kind of back in the rhythm where we fit it into our lives as dads, we're going to keep moving it forward. Again, thank you to anybody that, that listens to this episode that after 11 months came back to listen to Tweedledee and Tweedledum talk, t- 
Talk about Stephen King. <laughs> Wait, who's who? <laughs> I just need to know. Oh, you're Tweedledee, and I'm definitely Tweedledum. Uh, but thank you. Thank you for coming back and listening to it. Seriously, with, with, with all my heart, I thank you for coming back and listening to it. And we're, getting, we're back on the horse. We're back on the path. We're going to read The Stand because it's – oh, my God, Jesus Christ. The we're going to read The Shining. Um, and we're not going to delay. We're going to pick it up pretty mm-hmm. quickly. And hopefully yeah, to read now. get a wheel of Ka out very quickly. And then we have an idea where we're going to go after that. Oh yeah. We've thought about it, we've but we're going to leave you hanging that. with that. We're going to leave you hanging, but um, we are not going to stop. Yes. There may be breaks between them, but mm-hmm. the wheel of Ka is coming back because it is a wheel. It's only job is to turn. Mm. Well and said. Long days and pleasant nights. Long days and pleasant nights.